Japan is up 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea has risen 0.6%. And it looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng in about an hour's time. Uh, thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast mainly fine at first, apart from some haze and isolated showers and thunderstorms. Going to be very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. There is a very hot weather warning in force. The standby signal number one is also in force. It's 31 degrees right now, 72% relative humidity. Times 8.30. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Lawmaker Gary Zhang says he estimates up to 2,000 Hong Kong students are still waiting to return to their studies in the mainland. He welcomed measures announced by the government yesterday to set up so-called care corridors and give them priority to cross the border through a quota system. But he says students should be given more than one day's notice of when they can leave the SAR, as this may be insufficient time to arrange a PCR test. He also said most students wanted help with transportation in order to reduce their overall costs. The notice time can be more longer. And the second, we think the charter coaches to Hong Kong, Zhuhai Macau Bridge, to Zhuhai or to Zhongshan. As we heard from the students, many of them think that's the first choice because the prices, the cost of isolation is much more affordable compared to other options. The observatory says it'll issue the strong wind signal number three between noon and 2 p.m. as severe tropical storm Ma'an edges closer to the Pearl River estuary. The standby signal number one remains in force after being issued just after 9 p.m. yesterday. Ma'an is forecast to move toward the western coast of Guangdong while intensifying gradually. The observatory said local winds would strengthen tonight and that Ma'an should be close to Hong Kong tomorrow morning. A special prosecutor in the U.S. state of Georgia has ruled that two white police officers involved in the fatal shooting of a black man two years ago should not face criminal charges. Richard Brooks was shot in the back as he ran away from officers after taking a taser from them and attempting to fire it outside a restaurant in Atlanta. His death shortly after the police killing of George Floyd sparked a new wave of protests across the United States. The BBC's Nomia Iqbal reports. It's not likely to go anywhere now after this because it's been two years and the special prosecutor investigated this over the course of that time. Both men were charged, including the police officer that shot Rayshard Brooks. Uh, he was charged with murder. But in this case, the prosecutor has said that they are now plans in place to drop the charges against both police officers. The United States is expected to announce its largest single military aid package for Ukraine today as the country marks its Independence Day and the war hits the six-month mark. Here's the BBC's Anna Aslam. The United States has provided more than $10 billion in aid to Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February. But unlike previous aid packages, U.S. officials said this one is aimed at helping Kyiv secure its long-term defense, with no end to the war in sight. They said the funding, about $3 billion, would be used to train soldiers and buy weapons that may not be used in the battlefield for a year or two. Analysts say U.S. military aid has helped Ukrainian forces put the brakes on Russia's advance, especially in the east of the country. The Indian Air Force says three officers have been sacked for accidentally firing a missile into Pakistan in March. At the time, the incident was blamed on a technical malfunction, but the Air Force said an investigation had now established that it was caused by deviation from the standard operating procedures by the three officers. The missile crashed without causing any casualties. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong. And I'm Anna Fenton. On today's program, we're talking about the government's Strive and Arise program, a pilot scheme to help lift youngsters out of intergenerational poverty. 2,000 Form 1 to Form 3 students will be offered a place on the one-year program. They'll be given allowances totaling $10,000 and be assigned a mentor from various sectors to help broaden their horizons and teach them valuable life skills. So how will the program help? What kind of skills can mentors impart that would make a lasting difference? Is there scope for broadening the scheme in the future? After 9.15, we'll look at the elderly homeless situation. After a 74-year-old street sleeper was robbed in Kowloon City this week. Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us, of course, and our number is 23388266. That's 23388266. To kick off our discussion this morning, we have with us in the studio, Riz Ula, a member of the Youth Development Commission and Vice Principal of Lorting Pong Secondary School. On the line, we also have Silai Shan, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization, who is also a member of the Poverty Commission, and Anthony Wong, the Business Director of Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Good morning to all of you, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with you, Ms. C, because I know the um, Chief Secretary, Eric Chan, he, he briefed the Poverty Commission on the pilot program earlier. Um, Can you first uh, give us more details on how these mentors will be assigned to the students in the program? Um, Actually, the the program is that there will be 2,000 quota and then there will be, uh, even the mentors, they have two levels. One is uh, one-to-one and then they will be selected from those uh, uh, companies and and the other, and then those they need to fit uh, um, to meet their uh, uh, children at least um, Actually, they, they, the total is 12 times, including the one-to-one, and then the, the other is those uh, so-called superstar mentors, and then they will have a mass lecture to the children. So total will be 12 times, at least, yeah, uh, in the program. Is that and all? Then, 12 times in one year? Yeah, and then um, there will be 5,000 uh, for uh, for the mentor, 5,000 for the ch- children to use, and then the mentor guide them how to use the uh, financial assistance. And then after one year, if they finish the program, they have the 5000 for the children they can use uh, uh, by themselves to, to pay the, the, the 5000 how to use it. Um, but of course, the, the 2000 quota is too, too limit, limit um, because, uh, you know, we have uh, over t- uh, 200,000 200,000 uh, uh, children under public line and or even those living in something uh, uh, different, there are 50,000 children. And then I think for those, they are study uh, uh, junior secondary school, they are least over, I guess, are, um, they don't have very accurate uh, um, statistics, but I think it's over... Uh, at least uh, 10,000 or something like that. So, will so, these, um, so Ms. C, will these um, mentors be assigned randomly or according to uh, students' interests? I, I don't know, but they, I, but I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, they, they, I think they, they, the children, they cannot choose their mentors, I, I think, but I think they, they matching the mentors, they will 
see each other's interests or background and to see how to match them. Because according, we also have a mentor uh, program. We also we match with them and those more similar or they have the skill to teach the children they want. I think this would be better. Um, but I think for because they only request at least 12 times and then some is the math lectures. I think it's not enough. <laughs> in that enough for we have the mentoring relationship or the <clears throat> or the, how to in, have impact right, on so, the children. I think it's not enough. So, Missy, from what you're saying, a, a mentor who specializes in music may be assigned to a student who has uh, no interest in music. Uh, of course, uh, yeah. I think if the children they are interested in music, they can match a, a mentor there as a team in music that would be good for the children. Yeah. All right. Mr. Ulla, is this a pilot scheme or what you had expected? Uh, well, uh, there obviously is uh, some difference in expectations. Uh, but of course, uh, yesterday when they uh, when they roll out uh, some details yesterday, uh, I got a better picture of uh, what they'd like to do. I mean, like, uh, as they mentioned, they'd like to, you know, broaden their horizon, the student self-confidence. And also, you know, the uh, outlook on life and uh, set goals for future and see how they can help students uh, to develop uh, that sense and strive for uh, social uh, mobility, like uh, going upward. So in this whole thing, uh, I think, uh, like as what I have just heard from the, the, the speaker, the earlier speaker who is also on the uh, uh, Poverty Commission. Miss C. Miss C, yeah. So I, I think there are two things we, we would probably need to look at. Uh, the first thing is, uh, you know, how we can really ensure the quality is there, even though, like, let's say uh, it's a pilot program. OK, I mean, we, we have to use a pilot mindset to look at the deliverables here, because uh, if they have some good stories and some critical su success factors identified in the process, then it can only be, you know, uh, uh, gear up further. Otherwise, it will just become a firework only for a year. So what's the evaluation system for this? How will they know if it's worked and in what ways will they... What are the criteria for evaluating it? Well, I think uh, there, are, there are a couple of KPIs. Uh, can, can, we, can you explain what that means? Okay, some key performance indicators. For example, uh, whether the program is targeting the most needy one, even among the sub, uh, uh, like the kids who are uh, below the poverty line, how are they going to identify those 2,000 students? Uh, because like uh, whether they are newly arrival, whether they are ethnic minority, or they are kids with some special educational needs, like to, uh, to make sure to get a lot of experiences from this pilot program, I think there should be some strategic recruitment of these uh, kids from these subdivided uh, units because only then those mentors and other uh, superstars they put in could actually make a difference to these groups uh, because schools might be doing all these things before but uh, they didn't have those resources and now with this good resource of uh, mentors so that identification of uh, the most needy is very in, uh, very important. That recruitment process is something that needs to be reviewed after one year. And then second, how is the process of formulating those targets between the mentor and mentee? Because 
I think financial incentive is not the most important aspect of the whole scheme. It's that process where the kids are also engaged in formulating their targets with the mentors and with the input they get over the 12 sessions from them and also over the 12 sessions from the superstars. And then the kids might have some moments of truth which might be a turning point, making them believe that underprivileged kids can also break through the glass ceiling and aspire for change. Oh. And one more point, sorry, I just want to 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 add. It's, um, you know, the labeling issue must be carefully taken because, like, uh, yesterday we had a photo of those mentors, but mentees, I, uh, I mean, I'm sure kids of uh, underprivileged families, they might not want to be uh, in the footprint of media and all these things so, and how they should be labelled and uh, whether the society views the same way. These are things that uh, can be better taken care of. All right, but Mr Ulla, we, we're talking about just uh, 12 sessions between the mentors and the students. I mean, do you think that will be enough uh, to formulate targets that you, you just talked about? I think it's uh, the quality of talk is very important because when you sit down with young people, how you're going to talk with them and how you debrief them is a mastery. Not everyone can uh, can do it because uh, how they think is totally different from how we adult and we have this generation gap. Right, and so you just talked about how it requires special skills, I guess. Um, but but uh, from what Miss C has uh, been telling us, it doesn't seem like these mentors uh, will be trained or will be specially will be trained for this. Do you think it's necessary or important for these mentors to be uh, trained beforehand? Uh, I think there uh, there should be there will be some skills because this is based on some research, if I am correct, like uh, reading from. Uh, the government press release, uh, these, uh, the youth, I mean the mentors that are hired, there will be some debriefing for them, some, some support. If there isn't, there should be some level because uh, like how you can gain the trust and confidence of you know, the mentees when they have problems, what you can do as a mentor and where are the boundaries, mm -hmm. how you can seek support from their parents or if there's a need you need to uh, tap into some community resources to help these kids. That sort of coherence making, it's, it's an artwork. I mean, it requires a lot of synergy. So well, these support should be given. Yeah, and as humans, we've evolved over centuries to learn by copying people, to learn by modeling what adults do. So I'm not sure how 12 meetings once a month over one year and talking at children is going to change very much. What do you think? Uh, well, I look at it like this. Uh, because these 2,000 kids might never had the opportunity to meet a CEO, let's say, of a big firm or even uh, an Olympic gold medalist. But with this opportunity, with that few words of their sharing, it make a lasting change. But this depends on the, the, the quality of uh, those moments of truth. They talk about uh, helping these children to achieve their goals, but how does an 11 or a 12-year-old have the mental sophistication to know what their goals are? I think uh, if I uh, uh, like l speculating on uh, what the goals are, so those could be some experiences or some achievable targets that they can materialize 
we're not looking at something very long-term or very abstract things. Right. So let's uh, let's bring in uh, Mr. Wong. Um, good morning, Mr. Wong. Good morning. So, so we've been listening to what Mr. Ula has been saying, what Mr. C has been saying. What's your view of the uh, program? Uh, I think uh, I should uh, divide the uh, things into two levels. The first level, at the program level, people have been talking about so much about uh, the, uh, the the quality of the mentors, how they match, how they talk with the students. These are important. And we think that this program is also important as a start. Uh, but I think at the program level, perhaps we should uh, think about engaging more people from other sectors, including, I mean, now they have including uh, people from the sports, musical, and all the sectors, but then maybe some other uh, sectors which students may be more interested to explore, or they, they themselves, they, they may have some interest. And they could, you know, uh, help to identify uh, 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 sectors where the government can choose people uh, uh, as a mentors. And on the other hand, I think uh, don't uh, really. Un- I think we shouldn't just underestimate how much the uh, mentor and also the mentee should uh, would be, uh, you know. Um, the difficulties that they may encounter during the process. So in, in addition to this uh, mentorship program, I think we, we we think that we should have something like a case manager, the uh, mentee, and to help them out uh, in the process of participation, not just in terms of the communication between the mentor and the mentee, but also in terms of how, for example, at a time maybe the families are experiencing some difficulties or some problems uh, that may uh, affect their participation in the process, then that case manager may be able to help to locate resources in the community to help them uh, and then to, uh, you know, fully participate in in the process. So, you're talking about, so are you talking about a uh, social worker? Uh, social worker, it can be a social worker, but anybody, uh, any professional who is, is, uh, has a network of resources uh, that could I mean, that could be leverage, and then they may refer the students or the mentor to consult these uh, case managers uh, to locate uh, some resources. So, so you're saying there should be another level of supervisors in this mix? Uh, not actually a supervisor. Maybe I would say that that is like a coordinator more than a supervisor. Yeah. Okay. And so, who is going to assess if it's a match between the mentor and the mentee? Uh, I think uh, the the matching, uh, I don't know how the government is going to do it, but uh, I think uh, usually, uh, in fact, in the community, we've been uh, organizing this mentorship program all the time. So usually we engage the uh, students or the, the young people, they could express their interest and then, you know, organize a briefing for the mentor and then they could do some matching and, and uh, after the uh, the briefing, I think that there will be a lot of uh, you know different ways to organize this kind of uh, matching work. But uh, I think these are the program level that I think when the government is rolling out this program, they will have to figure out. Mm-hmm. One of the points that I would like to add is the fact that uh, recently we have conducted a research on this group of young people living in a subdivided unit. We find that there is a significant factor in terms of the environment that they 
they're living in. I mean, living in a subdivided unit, even if you have a lot of aspiration or a lot of things that you would like to do, but you don't have a space to do it. So I would think that in addition to an individual case-to-case space kind of work, I think we may think also think about how we could use a group setting, like establish uh, some kind of a community space in a, uh, I mean, looking for community space in the community, and then uh, try to engage uh, a group of mentees and a group of mentors uh, by their interests, and then use the group session to help them to, you know, gather support and uh, companionship and hoping that this kind of group process will be able to facilitate more communication. And that could be a uh, group level kind of mentorship. I no. think in addition to individual based work. We used, to, we, we used to call this the, the girl guides, the boy scouts and youth clubs. So what's happened to all those um, established routes to encourage young people that were already in the community? Yeah, uh, that, this is another thing that I would like to add on this uh, discussion. Because at the moment, we have been talking so much about uh, a, the outcome on individual youth. Uh, uh, well, whether you use a casework approach or a group work approach, I think what, uh, something that we have ignored is the fact that this kind of program, you think about this, you have 2,000 students being engaged, and the mentor and the mentee, they were, you know, uh, and, uh, communicating with each other, but this communication and the interaction, uh, you can think about this like quite in, invisible to the community, right? Mm. So these kind of case, even if they have a, uh, what uh, the other guest said, uh, the, the moment of truth and the critical turning point, these are things that are not visible to the public. I think uh, in addition to looking at these youth or the young people as the beneficiaries, how we could, you know, organize a platform, a public platform, so that their achievement in the process could be made visible. I think there should be a campaign or a movement element in addition to this kind of case work. So this is something that Boy Scout and Girl Guys and programs like this mm. uh, so far have not been able to uh, do much. I think because this now this is the government trying to organize the program, I think the government can leverage on its capacity uh, to, you know, uh, create or establish a stage, uh, not just to engage the mentor and mentee and then let them to communicate uh, with each other and help them to set goals, but also to identify cases or identify the shining points that could be launched in the state and publicized in the com- in the community, so that this kind of program could become really a driving force for the entire community, inspiring other stakeholders to engage in this kind of activity to solve the uh, interdependent poverty. I think that's the uh, this is something that I have been thinking a lot. Yeah, I think the sector has been. I mean, the social welfare sector has had uh, quite a lot of this kind of experience and. And we are ready to help on this. Yeah. Right. Ms. C, what's your view on this? So what's your view on uh, Mr. Wong's uh, suggestion that uh, this, uh, there should be a campaign and we should publicize this sort of uh, activity more? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I think if we have uh, all the uh, children under public night, they can join this kind of program. It's good for their development and because they can have more uh, 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 resources. 
from the community and and more those um, uh, um, uh, mature people to guide them and 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 also it's really important for them to widen their vision. So um, some of them actually they quite especially for them already uh, promote to secondary school and they are a very important uh, environment safe. So um, if uh, more people they can support them is important. But of course, actually, it's not easy to um, uh, communicate with the uh, uh, um, children there in this age um, because uh, some of them take they quite shy, and so I think it's, it's, it, it takes time to um, build up the relationship. So uh, we suggest um, the mentoring actually should be longer time, um, and or there should be um, a request of more t- uh, uh, times to meeting. Otherwise, um, it's hard to build up the relationship. Um, besides, um, um, there should be um, a social worker there for many with their children, so they can uh, facilitate the mentors to communicate with the children and have one more um, <coughs> assistant to the mentor. And so uh, Missy, just now, just now you said uh, it, it's uh, difficult to communicate with some of these uh, students because at this age they might be uh, quite shy, and that uh, was what Mr. Ula was talking about earlier about how mentors uh, they should be trained. Um, from yes, what you've yes. been told, I mean, will these mentors be, uh, be, be will these? Be yeah. So, so from what you heard from the chief secretary, did he did he mention anything about uh, training of these mentors or any some maybe some debriefing sessions or, or some support that will be offered to these mentors? Uh, I think they will be a briefing session, but I'm not sure they will have a more um, uh, in-depth training. I think there should be um, uh, at least training of uh, about you know about the psychological needs of the children, and then uh, how to communicate the skill to communicate with the children. And besides, uh, for those uh, living in underprivileged family. Um, they have many obstacles. They have uh, some of them even they actually lost their confidence to uh, develop their future. So they are uh, uh, quite difficult. So, so I think for the mentors, they are not. Not. I think the most important quality is not their superstar or not. Is um, they understand children. They willing to listen to children, and they they like to communicate with children. And they are easygoing, and of course they have experience. They are willing to sharing. This is uh, very important. Doctor Ulla, I'm 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 concerned that we're going in too high here. We're dealing with people who don't even have self confidence to lose. We're dealing with kids who don't even have self esteem. Surely mm. we need to go a lot lower than this. Then self-confidence is quite an evolved concept that comes from doing things. It, it's mm. probably not even a, an applicable word for these kids. Where should we start this? At what level, Dr. Ola? What do you think? Well, uh, I, I think probably when, uh, uh, like right now, they're targeting students at uh, junior forms. So I think, like, if you ask me, like... Uh, 13 to 16 is the the age where you can, you know, really start uh, talking to kids and things would uh, be more comprehensive to them and it would make much more sense to them. But of course, I mean, if they're looking at uh, junior form right now, we would be looking at kids who are 11 to, you know, if there might be some mature students as well, 11 to 15. So since this is a pilot study, I mean, I'm holding a, uh, uh, well, uh, an optimistic view 
on this and hoping that uh, this pilot study can bring some uh, good experiences for the mentorship 3.0. As Anthony has just mentioned uh, in the community, mentorship thing has, it's not a new concept, but it's just that now the government is involved from the high level. So there'll be high level of leverage and all these things. So I suggest, I mean, from a research angle, there should be a control group as well. So you look at the differences, what impact it make, and this can actually inform the feedback and planning for mentorship 3.0 in the society and also inform and facilitate other relevant government bureau when they do children and youth development work. So you build in an evaluation system which produces real data to, to base future decisions on about what works. And, uh, and the most important is you, have a, now you use a scientific approach where you look at a group who benefit from this scheme and a group that don't benefit from this scheme and look at how it, it is shaping and what brings in to this, like this program brings into the change. So this is something I think can be looked at it's, since it's a pilot program. All right, uh, Mr. Ulla, we have to take a short break for the news summary. Um, we can, of course, continue our discussion afterwards when we will be joined by Judith Yu, the chairperson of the Quality Mentorship Network. And uh, Ms. C, I know you have to go. Many thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Silai Shan, the deputy director of the Society for Community Organization, who is also a member of the Poverty Commission. And remember, if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, you can give us a call. Our number is 233 Now, Here's the weather, mainly fine with haze to start with, squally showers and thunderstorms later. The top temperature today will be around 33 degrees. Winds light to moderate north to northeasterlies. The standby signal number one is currently in force. Forecasters say winds will strengthen at night. And right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 31 degrees, relative humidity 71%. In November and beyond. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Anna Fenton and me, Janice Wong. If you're just tuning in now, we're talking about a government pilot scheme to help lift youngsters out of intergenerational poverty. Those taking part will be given allowances and be assigned a mentor from various sectors to help broaden their horizons and teach them valuable life skills. Now, if you want to ask questions or just uh, share your views, email us at backchat at rchk.hk or just give us a call on 23388266. Still with us on the program is Anthony Wong, Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service, and Rizwan Ula, a member of the Youth Development Commission and Vice Principal of Lauting Pong Secondary School. Also joining us now is Judith Yu, the Chairperson of the Quality Mentorship Network. Good morning, Ms. Yu. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. So, um, first of all, what, can you tell us a bit about um, the characteristics of a good mentorship program? Um, the Good Mentorship Program uh, should actually, uh, first of all, um, we need to have uh, those mentors who are actually willing to, to guide uh, the youth. And also they, um, uh, the whole program actually should uh, include um, training with both the mentors and the candidates. And also um, throughout the mentorship uh period, I think uh, we should actually uh, monitor the progress and at the end, I think it's also important to, to evaluate uh, the, the improvements of the candidates uh, 
in different areas that the mentors are supposed to actually help him and, and guide him, guide the candidate. And then what's the best way to, to evaluate? I mean, earlier, uh, our guest, uh, Mr. Ula, he was talking about how there should be a control group so we can compare the, um, the benefits uh, of the mentorship program. Um, yes, I think that uh, we should have a um, professional team, actually, like what we've been doing with the uh, uh, NGO, Quality Mentorship Network. We should have the whole uh, panels actually, to assess, uh, to um, develop uh, uh, the whole evaluation process follow uh, uh, the, the, the results after the one-year uh, mentorship program. And uh, what was your view of uh, the government's uh, program? Uh, the new, yes. new uh, Strike and Right program? Yes. Could, we're um, having, well, could I just pause you there? Do, do you have another phone on near you that um, you could turn off? Uh, I'm hearing no, no, interference. No. Yeah, is, is that okay now? Yeah, yeah it sounds fine. Okay. Um, uh, the government uh, new plan, actually, I would say it's um, uh, an improved, much better uh, version of the existing CBS program that's been running for the past um, 14 years that we've got involved as well. And um, it uh, actually has um, offered a lot more uh, different programs for the candidates including um, in different areas, interest areas, and also um, it's, a gov- it's actually led by the government. Uh, closely, uh, yeah, it's actually monitored by the government and led by the government. And um, it's going to um, have a, a bigger impact, I would say. So in your experience, what, what, what works and what doesn't work with these are very young kids, 11 to 13. What works with them? Um, I think uh, we need to understand their background and also uh, in order to be um, effective, I think um, the mentors are really important and we have to be patient with them, have a good heart, really want to um, uh, uh, help them, guide them through. And it's also very important to have good communication skills in order uh, to break the ice because, I mean, the, uh, the new program, 12-month program, actually, they it's uh, a little bit rush in order to build up a trustworthy relationship between the mentors and the, uh, and the candidates, I would say. Right. And apart from getting a mentor in, in this yeah. uh, government program, the students, um, um, they will get a uh, 10,000, they will get $10,000, um, $5,000 during the program and the rest after they complete the program. Um, is this something new or, or is it uh, quite uh, common in mentorship programs? Um, actually, the government program in the past or actually still running is um, involving the saving element of the candidates. But this new one, actually, I, I wouldn't say it's something new, but it's more generous and um, actually um, it doesn't uh, involve the, the saving element. So um, it's just giving out. And also, um, in the past, actually, the government funded the, the, uh, the first portion of the, uh, of the funding and then we match uh, the, the public. Actually, we try to raise money, different NGOs, 
and then we match the savings as well. So what's what's time, the money for? Uh, you know, you give you give five grand to an eleven year old. What are they going to do with it? Um, actually, it's uh, we should use this money uh, to help them to to uh, achieve their their goals in different areas, different interests that they want to pursue. So the money actually is very important. Uh, to be used in an effective way to help them to understand uh, the, the financial management and, uh, yeah. So is the mentor the one in charge of administering how the money is spent? Yeah, I think the mentors, uh, yeah, will play a significant role in that. All right. I have a few messages here. This one is uh, from uh, caller Ed. He says that the $10,000 allowance will not resolve the economic, social and educational aggregation, which are the causes of integrational poverty. And another message here from Richard. He says uh, that if a student completes this program and is still living in a subdivided flat, how is that going to broaden his or her horizons? And uh, that message is from Richard. Mr. Ulla, I mean, solving this integrational poverty problem will take time, right? Yeah, it will take time. And uh, I, I think like... Uh, uh, Tapping on uh, what other speakers has uh, also shared uh, earlier, like I think once uh, the kids have completed this uh, 12 months, I, I, I think how uh, the qu the question is uh, where to leverage these kids further, uh, like the uniform groups as what uh, Anthony mentioned, or even some other uh, other organizations or companies who can provide these opportunities further, taking advantage of, you know, like all these listed companies has to comply with some ESG requirements and things like that in their report. And uh, how they can also tap into the findings and also some feedback uh, from this experience. And this is, I think, uh, a way to, you know, uh, help back these 2,000 kids who have participated and also the next phase of uh, this scheme. Anthony Wong, what do you think about the next phase of the scheme? How can this be a, a segue into something more sustainable? Uh, yeah, the, the next phase, as I said, uh, I think it, if, it, if we want it to be more sustainable, I think we have to go beyond the mindset of uh, individualizing these uh, students because in all the mentorship relationships, uh, despite uh, that these kind of relationship may help, but the fact is that, as uh, the government is also aware, and many other stakeholders in the society are aware that uh, these people living in the subdivided units, both their parents and the children, are actually not quite socially connected. I mean, in the program, if there is an occasion or there's a group sessions uh, for these young people to get together, and then somebody facilitating them to communicate with each other. And then in that companionship, they can gain uh, confidence. They can gain more support, mutual support. That could, you know, really uh, enhance their confidence. And if these kind of stories, we have to go beyond looking at them as beneficiaries. They have the potential. I, I, I'm coming from a very different angle of looking at these uh, families. Although they are quite deprived at the moment, but I think they have different talents and they have different things. And if we can, uh, through this program, we can tease out those important elements and then we build a stage for them to shine, for them to share with the community. They can speak to the community. They can speak to other stakeholders in the society and how they strive for success. And in the mentorship program, if we can engineer more easily accessible, successful experience for the students, and these kind of uh, points and story could be you know, told 
in the community and heard by the in, entire public. And this kind of work could, you know, really drive itself to a more sustainable and impactful uh, 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 program. Uh, just now we talk about how we should re- evaluate. I, I, I think in addition to evaluate how much each mentor, mentee has benefited from the program, Another important indicator or another important uh, component to evaluate is that how this program is uh, 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 really publicized in the society in a way that is able to inspire more people, to inspire people living in the subdivided unit and also people who are trying to help these people, uh, families living in the subdivided unit. And then you can, you know, bring up a new campaign or movement to to drive the entire society to solve this big problem of intergeneration poverty. I think this is the the kind of vision or the kind of vision that I, I am. I really, I really hope that this program could achieve. Mr. Wong, you talk about how this uh, program should be publicized and more people should know about it. But earlier, Mr. Ule, he was talking about uh, the labeling issue. He, he's yeah, this is a, yeah, this is a key issue. I think, I think at the moment, because we think these people are beneficiaries, they are service recipients, and that would have the, imp, uh, the, the problem of labeling. But now we are trying to use this mandatory program, identify positive experience, identify stories that how they have thrived and rise to a, to a point that there are some stories, some experiences that, that can be shared with the community. I think people will be able to see that even people living in this kind of environment, they, will be, they have their own successful story. And this kind of story could be shared. And I'm, I'm sure that a lot of children or even the parents will be willing to share this kind of stories uh, uh, to, to inspire the community. All right, I have an email here from Vic. He says, uh, Dear Backchat, kids chosen for this program will not come with the same disadvantages. He doubts the mentor will have the time and skill set to identify the specific disadvantage. Some will lack language skills. Some may not have the exposure. Kids' selection and motivation is something the government should pay attention to and must get professionals involved. He says it's a good idea, but the devil is in the detail. And uh, that email is from Vic. Miss um, Yu, do you think um, professionals uh, should be involved in this program? Uh, yeah, I think definitely we should involve professionals, especially um, well uh, in selecting the, the mentors to help the kids and to run through the whole program uh, in order for it to be a successful and effective one at the end of one year. I think uh, we should engage the professionals. And I realise that actually in the government uh, uh, campaign, uh, there are professionals in different areas. Uh, I think it just needs to fine-tune and... Uh, uh, lay out a more detailed uh, uh, selection process and the whole uh, evaluation system at the end of the program. I think, yeah. And also in uh, the society, there are actually uh, uh, professionals in the including from different universities uh, 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 so um, and different uh, experts in the market. I'm sure they can offer their, their service. So I definitely believe professionals should be involved. So more organization needed and, and more thinking through of all of this. Yes, and also because the society, uh, uh, based on the existing programs, a lot of organizations are already doing that and they can share the experience uh, in, in, in actually helping. Right. Uh, 
And uh, I, I, have, I mean, from from reports in the media, we know that uh, um, these. Um, I mean, we know how the mentors uh, may be selected and the students taking part. I think uh, it will be the schools or the NGOs that uh, will uh, sort of recommend uh, students uh, to take part in the scheme. Mr. Wong, have you heard anything about that? Uh, I, we haven't yet uh, heard about this, but I'm sure that a lot of, student, uh, a lot of schools and NGOs will be willing to uh, help to nominate more students. The, the key point is to how we... Yeah, how we should uh, engage not just the uh, the youth, but the parents, but then also the entire society to engage in this program. Yeah. And uh, there have been uh, no mention of ethnic minority students. Uh, mm. Mr. Wong, do, do you think, um, I mean, they should be included in this program as well? And earlier, Mr. Oh, Ola, he was talking about uh, students definitely. with special educational needs. Yeah, what's your view of that? I mean... Definitely. I think uh, there are a lot of uh, NGOs and social enterprises working uh, with the ethnic minorities groups. I think the government may be may contact with these uh, uh, NGOs or, society or, or social enterprises and to see how they could engage more ethnic minorities in the community. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, young uh, ethnic minorities they have been consistently uh, uh, deprived of uh, even the most basic kind of uh, uh, educational uh, resources. And if they are looking for jobs, they may have uh, they may have a lot of frustration in looking for jobs. And you know, not mentioning about career development. I think this kind of program will particularly uh, suitable for this uh, uh, EM community to participate. Yeah. Right, and we all agree that uh, this pilot scheme is a good start. But to really um, right. help resolve intergenerational poverty, what else? Uh, what else can be done, uh, Mr. Wong? Uh, I, as I said, intergenerational poverty is a big thing. You can't solve the problem with it, with two thousand uh, 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 mentees. mentees uh, uh, but it's a, as a start. Uh, I think we should position this program not just as a service program, but as a movement, as I said, as an advocacy program. You you don't use you don't just provide service to 2,000 stu- uh, students. You provide you through providing service to these students, you try to impact the entire society, hoping that more uh, people can be engaged. Not just engage as a beneficiaries, but also engage as a people who can help to contribute to solve the problem of intergenerational poverty. I think that would give the life of this movement, and hope that in the in the in the future, with the entire community and, and the entire society will, will will contribute more to solve this problem. All right, Mr. Ulla, finally, any any final words? Uh, well, uh, looking forward to it. All right, uh, Mr. Ulla, we'll have to um, wrap it up here. And uh, thank you again for joining us this morning. That is uh, Rizwan Ulla, a member of the Youth Commission, Youth Development Commission and a vice principal of Lauting Pong Secondary School. Also, many thanks to Anthony Wong, business director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service and uh, Judith, Judith Yu, the chairperson of the Quality Mentorship Network. It's now 20 minutes past nine and it's time for us to turn to our second topic today. And that's about the elderly homeless situation after a 74-year-old street sleeper was robbed in Kowloon City this week. To tell us more, we're now joined by Charlotte Tottenham, Head of Partnerships and Development at Impact Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Tottenham. 
morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, this case does put the focus on uh, the homeless elderly population in Hong Kong. But um, before we get to that, um, let's look at the case itself. I mean, it involves an elderly woman who has money and a home, although she refuses to live there because of family issues. Are there many cases like that in Hong Kong? How rare is it? Well, I mean, this is something we're asked quite a lot. So this thing about whether someone is going to choose to live in accommodation or whether they're going to choose to live on the street. So I think what we have to think about is that actually, like, private space is extremely limited in in Hong Kong and accommodation is extremely limited. And um, a lot of people don't really have what I would call a choice. So they might have the option between a tiny cramped bed space in maybe a subdivided apartment. They might have just 10 or 20 square foot themselves. And they might also have issues with conflict between the generations in their family. So actually, family relationship breakdown is quite often the final trigger for homelessness and the reason that people kind of do end on the street, end up on the streets. And I'm sad to say that it's not uncommon. It's something that we see cases like this quite often. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, this case does put the focus on the elderly population here. Uh, what is the situation like? Are, are there many um, elderly people, uh, elderly homeless people? Mm. Yeah, again, sadly, this is quite a common picture that we're seeing. So uh, the average age of someone experiencing homelessness in Hong Kong is actually in their early 60s. And, you know, for people like that, they're really going to be on a waiting list for a subsidised elderly home. They're not going to have the option to... Um, apply for a private home. And we heard earlier this year um, that, that last year over 6,000 seniors passed away while waiting for their public, you know, public elderly home space. Um, and actually, you know, with the clients that we work with who've been homeless, it's not really the right fit necessarily for them. It, it's a mainstream service. Um, so, you know, this is the option and this is where they could go. But if you've been homeless and you've been socially excluded, you know, for a very long time, you might have complex needs, like you might have issues with your mental health, or you might have, um, you know, uh, sort of habits like perhaps hoarding. You know, going into a, a community centre that is, you know, doesn't have specialised support, it doesn't really work. You know, it's, it's not the right fit, um, and it takes. You know, we need more more sort of specialised support for these people. Um, it takes a long time to help bring them back into that community environment, really. And what's yeah. been the and, and what's been the impact of the uh, COVID pandemic on on this uh, situation on this problem? Yeah, good question. I mean, everything has been hit so hard by COVID in the social sector, and we hear about you know elderly homes not just here but across the world. You know, having you know totally burnt out staff, being totally stretched. You know, with um, with their residents not being cared for. Um, and then you, if you go onto the streets and you think about people who don't even have that care, it's just so much more extreme. Like we've seen a big increase in homelessness. We've seen we're actually seeing more women on the streets than ever before. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's really hard. And and then the subsequent restrictions mean that there are you know there are pauses in the care you can give. So obviously earlier this year in the fifth wave. You know, we have to suspend a load of our services. We can do the emergency stuff. You know, we can help people with food. We can do emergency accommodation. But we can't, you know, run a, a, a you know, sports class to help someone get moving and help them get, you know, their kind of um, get mobile. We can't do the stuff that really is going to help someone progress. So, yeah, it's 
you know, and obviously it's, it's dragging on, um, you know, the COVID situation. So it's it, it's going to be a while before we can really get out of that situation and really give the support that we need to these elderly homeless. And do you have any figures? I mean, do you have an estimate of, of uh, how many uh, elderly homeless people there are in Hong Kong? So there are, in terms of people who are currently experiencing homelessness, we did a census last year with the other non-profits serving the homeless and with CUHK, and that put the number at 1,500 approximately. And the majority of those are middle-aged or elderly, although the elderly bracket is around, is around 50. Um, and the reason for that is actually when you're living on the streets, it, it, you are, you know, your health is often much more compromised. You know, we see a lot of long-term illness, we see a lot of physical disability, and a lot of mental illness. Um, so there's a big portion of that that is older adults. And then, actually, there's a lot of people who we're not reaching. So, you know, this lady, for example, she, she's not receiving active support from, uh, you know, from us, for example. And women often are forced to go into kind of hidden places. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, people out there who are really maybe in need of support and care and outreach that we simply can't reach um, because because of, you know, various reasons where they're sort of pushed out of sight. When you say out of sight, hidden places, um, where do you mean? Yeah, so, for example, on rooftops, we might get people... Um, you know, creating a small kind of bed space or a little hut on on rooftops, maybe in doorways, McDonald's, you know, being very um, uh, sort of transient and nomadic, um, particularly for women, this is a thing because they are more sort of vulnerable um, to, like, attack or exploitation, so they're less likely to go and gather in a park together with, you know, um, a big group of people. And they will, uh, you know, sensibly seek out places that are well-lit. Um, so... Yeah, hidden has been not much harder for us as kind of you know social sector service providers to reach them and to visit them every week and to bring them a, you know food and just to start that conversation and say you know we're here we care for you and can you know can we help? And are they more likely to have addiction and mental health problems than the men in your observation of the same age? I don't. To be honest, I don't think it'd be fair to say that. I, there's not enough data in Hong Kong um, either way. There's definitely different issues that you see kind of along gender divides. Like, for example, among men, you might see more gam- issues with gambling, um, but you know, women will have more of a family burden, which is exactly, you know, we can see that in this case, that maybe this woman has made the sacrifice, you know, they don't have the space for her and her children to live together, and she's gone out onto the streets. And, you know, women in uh, many societies bear the burden of, you know, caregiving burden, um, and or caregiving honour, perhaps we should call it. Um, and as in providing, you know, providing, providing care. Well, I, I, you know, giving giving care. You know, holding the kind of um, the social responsibility of the family, um, and that you know has a huge amount of um, you know, things that comes with it. For example, if we have, you know, maybe an elderly male family member. Some of them have lost contact with their families or, um, you know, don't have contact with their children. But the women, that is, it's rarely the case, you know, in homelessness. Like, they still would have a kind of family tie. Um, but the addiction and mental illness, I wouldn't be able to, you know, comment on the overall data. 
Right. And uh, how, I mean, I mean, earlier you talked about how there are more women sleeping on the streets now. And how is that, uh, um, how, how, I mean, did you, do you have to um, amend or change your outreach uh, program because of the, these changes? Yeah, good question. I mean, for us, our outreach is kind of, um, it's, it's something that's just the tip of the iceberg. So we just provide very basic care on the streets. We um, deliver a meal and we um, do a sort of small check-in. We sometimes do some medical support. But our, where for us the, the kind of care and rehabilitation that we can really provide is once people come in our doors, um, and they, you know, become a client and they, they meet and are assigned a caseworker who's a social worker. And we're actually in the process of launching a specialised um, women's uh, communal living social housing project. So the idea there is that these women who, who maybe are facing uh, addiction issues, like you mentioned, and, and struggling with mental illness, they are typically being um, discharged from hospital, uh, from maybe psychiatric units. They've, they've stabilised slightly, but not really enough to go into independent living, and they need the support and the kind of residential um, supported housing model um, to keep them safe and help them kind of take their next step towards independence. Um, so, yeah, that's something that's kind of emerged out of the need we've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, so we're hoping to get that started next year, and it's, you know, it's, it can't come soon enough because these women are really vulnerable when they're outside. All right. Uh, good luck with that work, um, Ms. Tottenham, of Tottenham. We all have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Charlotte Tottenham, Head of Partnerships and Development at Impact Hong Kong. And many thanks to you who emailed and uh, commented today. Now here's the weather, mainly fine with haze to start with, squally showers and thunderstorms later. Highs expected today of around 33 degrees. Winds light to moderate north to northeasterlies. The standby signal number one is currently in force. Forecast is say winds will strengthen at night and will further strengthen with heavy squally uh, thunderstorms tomorrow. Right now it's uh, 31 degrees, relative humidity 66%. I am Donnie Yen, contactless e-channels, the fusion of technology with quality service. Download the contactless e-channel mobile app and complete the enrollment through I am smart. Generate the QR code to enter any channel. Face the camera and perform facial verification. Immigration clearance is swift, contact